that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Good morning and welcome to all of you on this, uh, or for this uh, fourth Sunday in Advent service. Our text is Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57 and going to the end of the chapter that Roger read for us. I encourage you uh, to have your Bibles open to that passage. Our passage today has two parts. Just like the passage that Keith preached on uh, last week had two parts, and the one that David Weston will preach on next Sunday has two parts. One part of each of these passages is a delightful and memorable account of some humble, faithful people from a long line of such people who have been waiting generation after generation for God's promises to be fulfilled in the coming or the advent of Messiah. Last week it was the account of the two pregnant ladies, Mary and Elizabeth. Next Sunday it will be the account of the two senior citizens in the temple, Simeon and Anna. Today is the account of the elderly priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, and their neighbors and relatives at the circumcision of the couple's newborn son, John. The other part of each passage is a prophetic monologue given in the power of the Holy Spirit by one of the people in the story. Each monologue speaks with profound insight into the moment of history and speaks from the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures that declare God's promises and have given hope and encouragement throughout many dark centuries. Each of these very well-known monologues is called by its first word in the, in the Latin. Last week it was Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. Next week it's Simeon's Nunc Diminis. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. And today it's Zechariah's Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This morning, uh, David Weston had with him uh, a Bible that had Greek and Latin, and so I flipped through, and sure enough, the first word of the Benedictus is Benedictus <laughs> in Latin. So in the sermon this morning, first we'll look at the story of John the Baptist's birth. Second, we'll look at the message of Zechariah's Benedictus. And finally, we'll consider the significance of our passage for the season of Advent that we are concluding this morning before we turn tonight 
to celebrate Christmas. So first, the story. Last week we heard that Mary came to visit Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's extraordinary pregnancy. <coughs> Mary stayed for about three months, the scripture tells us. She stayed with Elizabeth and speechless Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is not speechless because of Mary's visit, but rather because he has been struck dumb after he doubted the words of the angel who announced that he and Elizabeth would have a child in their old age. Six months plus three months equals nine months. It's time for Elizabeth's baby to be born. Mary leaves just before this event, probably so as not to draw unnecessary or premature attention to her, as Keith called it last week, beyond extraordinary pregnancy. So we pick up the story in verse 57 with Elizabeth giving birth to a son. There is much rejoicing among neighbors and relatives. The Lord has been merciful to this elderly and barren couple, allowing them at long last to have a child. According to the law of Moses, infant boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. So the neighbors and relatives come on that day for that purpose. They assumed the boy's name would be Zechariah, like his father. But in verse 60, Elizabeth speaks up, no, he shall be called John. What? That's not a family name. So the neighbors and relatives appeal to dad. <laughs> At this point, we find out that Zechariah is not only unable to speak, he is also apparently unable to hear. If he could hear, he would have heard the exchange about his son's name, and he could have nodded agreement with Elizabeth's statement. Or he could have made signs to the group in response to a direct question. But instead, they made signs to him. Verse 62. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Zechariah writes in a, he writes a decisive answer and he writes it in the present tense. His name is John. Indeed, this child's name has been John since the angel said so, before he was conceived, and before his father began a nine-month silent retreat. <laughs> the name John means, actually, uh, <laughs> I asked, we have a John with us today, so I asked him uh, when he came in um, if he knew what the name John means, and, and he didn't. And I have to say, I didn't know what the, John, the name John meant either until I was preparing for this message. So the name John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. It's a beautiful name. But it wasn't a family name. So everyone is standing around wondering how and why Zechariah and Elizabeth chose it. Then suddenly in verse 64, 
Zechariah's mouth is opened and his tongue loosed. Verse 67 adds that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he bursts forth blessing God in the words of his Benedictus, which we'll look at in a moment. Can you imagine what this would be like for the neighbors and relatives? Zechariah's been deaf and mute for nine months. Then suddenly he regains his faculties, and the first thing out of his mouth is this profound pronouncement of praise and prophecy. This eloquent declaration steeped in Old Testament scriptures. Now is the time. God is sending Messiah. And John will be God's prophet, the one to prepare the way for God and the salvation he is bringing through Messiah. The reaction to Zechariah is powerful. Verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. It is the fear of God. It is awe. And it spread. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And everyone who heard about these events is pondering them in their hearts and asking, what then will this child be? No doubt they watched him closely as he grew up. Verse 66 says the hand of the Lord was with him. And verse 80 at the end of our uh, passage says that once he grew and became strong in the spirit, he withdrew to live in the wilderness until the word of God would come to him and he would begin his public ministry as John the Baptist. Hmm. So that's the story. Now let's look at Zechariah's Benedictus, verses 68 to 79. Now, a very great deal can be and has been said about this text. But I want to focus our attention today by asking and attempting to answer one question. The question is, what does Zechariah say about the salvation that God is bringing through Messiah? What does Zechariah say about the salvation that God is bringing through Messiah. In other words, according to Zechariah, what is the deliverance God will deliver? I have seven brief points to make about God's salvation according to the verses of the Benedictus. First point, God's salvation is redemption. God's salvation is redemption. It's about redeeming or buying back God's people who are enslaved, in bondage, or oppressed. Verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Second point. God's salvation is brought about by a strong Messiah. God's salvation is brought about by a strong Messiah. Verse 69 says, 
God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. To raise up a horn is to raise up a strong leader or warrior. The image of strength comes from the horns of a bull. Since this strong leader comes from the house of David, this is a clear reference to Messiah. Third point. God's salvation is promised of old and accords with his mercy and covenant faithfulness. God's salvation is promised of old and accords with his mercy and covenant faithfulness. Verse 70 says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And verses 72 and 73 say, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Fourth point. God's salvation is deliverance from enemies. God's salvation is deliverance from enemies. Verse 71 says, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Fifth point. God's salvation is deliverance for serving God. God's salvation is deliverance for serving God. That God's people would be free to serve him without fear of anything except God alone. Verse 74-75 say that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Hmm. And aside here, remember in the Exodus when God acted to redeem his people who were in slavery in Egypt God said to Pharaoh through Moses, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now it's not that God is just a stronger Pharaoh needing slaves for his projects, so he's taken them away from Pharaoh's projects. God redeemed his people in the Exodus because they were not free to worship him while they were enslaved in a land that worshipped other gods. Mm -hmm. Serving God is about worshipping God with our whole lives, having no other gods before him. And this <coughs> is for our good, for our flourishing, not because God has an ego problem or needs us to do something for him. The world tells us freedom comes in making up ourselves and our plans to please ourselves. But the Bible teaches that true freedom comes in being and doing what God, our Creator, intended for us when He made us. There's a prayer in the service for morning prayer that says, His service is perfect freedom. Sixth 
point. God's salvation involves forgiveness of sins. God's salvation involves forgiveness of sins. When we think of being delivered from enemies, we probably think of threatening people or circumstances, and enemies certainly include those. Um, But even if we did not have a single uh, such external enemy, we would still need deliverance from our internal enemy, sin, Mm. that estranges us from God. Later in Luke's Gospel, John the Baptist's ministry will be to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 77 says of John the Baptist that he will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Another aside here, once I was uh, visiting a woman in prison, I assumed she regarded the external things of the prison, such as the walls and fences and the guards, as her enemies. But she told me no. What she saw as her enemies were the crime for which she was doing time and the patterns of behavior that gave rise to it. I was deeply humbled by this woman who, instead of identifying herself as a victim in need of vindication, understood herself as a sinner in need of forgiveness. Instead of self-justifying excuses, she expressed repentance and a longing for deliverance from her internal enemies through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, the seventh point. God's salvation involves a Messiah who gives light to guide God's people into the way of peace. God's salvation involves a Messiah who gives light to guide God's people into the way of peace. Verses 78-79 say, The sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Greek word translated sunrise here has the sense of springing up. Think of the sun springing up at sunrise. This is the word that is used to translate a Hebrew word used in some important Old Testament passages about Messiah. These passages describe Messiah as a branch or a shoot springing up from the stump or the family line of David's father, Jesse. And another passage describes Messiah as the rising son of righteousness. So when Zechariah says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, we can recognize that he's talking about Messiah. The rest of uh, verses 78-79 draw on um, the famous passage from Isaiah 9 about Messiah. The passage that begins with this verse, the people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that passage goes on to describe Messiah with various names, including Prince of Peace. And in the Benedictus, in in verse uh, 79, it says, Messiah will guide God's people into the way of peace. So those are my seven brief points about God's salvation according to Zechariah in the Benedictus. And that brings me to our final topic, the significance of our passage for the season of Advent. Zechariah was a devout Jewish priest, well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. After his nine-month enforced um, time of silent reflection, When his tongue was loosed and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he spoke forth from the scriptures. His beautiful hymn, the Benedictus, expresses the Jewish expectation of what the coming or advent of Messiah would mean. It was the the expectation that all God's salvation promises would be fulfilled all at once, Mm -hmm. spiritually, relationally, physically, politically, and in every way. That the old age of oppression and pain in all these aspects of life would come immediately to an end. And the age to come of perfect peace and flourishing, of shalom for God's people, would begin. But this expectation was wrong in one important way. There would not be one advent, but two. The first advent was when Jesus the Messiah, or Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, came at the first Christmas. He was born, lived, suffered, was crucified, rose, ascended, and poured out the Holy Spirit for Jews and Gentiles alike who repent and believe the gospel. At this first advent, Mm. many of God's salvation promises were fulfilled. Many, but not all. The remaining promises will yet be fulfilled, but not until the second advent, when Jesus will return in glory as he promised. In particular, consider the matter of deliverance from enemies. Although the result of Jesus' first advent is that we can be delivered from our internal enemies, through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And by cooperating with the Holy Spirit's work in us, our vices, that is, patterns of behavior that produce sin in us can in time be beaten back. But when it comes to external enemies of all kinds, well, that's a different story, isn't it? It's clear that we have not yet been delivered from all our enemies. 
This is because in the time between the two advents, the old age and the age to come overlap and are present together. The New Testament calls this time between the two advents the last days. So we have been in the last days for some 2,000 years now. At the first advent, the age to come began. People began to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God as they repented of their sin, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and received the Holy Spirit. But the old age continues because many people remain in the kingdom of darkness. And even for those transferred into the kingdom of God, the process of what is called sanctification, or becoming holy, is by no means instantaneous. Even as the Holy Spirit is at work within us to grow our capacity to serve God in holiness and righteousness, we still sin and contribute to oppression and pain in the world. This overlapping of the ages will continue until Jesus returns at the second advent. Then the old age will come to an end. And everything and everyone who resists the kingdom of God will perish. Then the kingdom of God will be fully and perfectly established forever. Returning to Zechariah, once Jesus came in his first advent, Jews with the one advent expectation had to adjust to the more complicated reality of two advents. Either that or reject Jesus as Messiah. Later in Luke's Gospel, we see an example of the struggle of such devout Jews Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, prepares the way for Jesus, but then at a certain point, John is arrested by King Herod and thrown in prison. This is not how things are supposed to go once Messiah comes. So John sends some of his followers to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus' response is not to rebuke them, but to show them the miraculous signs he is performing and send them back to, to John to tell him what they've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. These are clear scriptural signs that the kingdom of God has come. Even as the old age persists, the new age has begun. And Jesus is most definitely the one who is to come. But of course, today, the problem of evil is still one of the major objections people raise against the proclamation 
that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Some years ago, I had a conversation with an ethnically Jewish man who said he was an agnostic. He said he would be an atheist, except that holding up the possibility that God might exist gave him someone to blame for all the evil in the world that God ought to have prevented. I can only say, as I have said before in response to such objections, that God is not lacking in compassion or power to deal with evil. All things will be set right when Jesus returns at the second advent. And at that time, all God's people will be delivered from all their enemies. No, God is not impotent or uncaring. Rather, God is patient. does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance and join his people who will be delivered from all their enemies. In conclusion... The season of Advent is a time to remember we are in the last days. To look back to Jesus Christ's first Advent proclaimed by Zechariah in the Benedictus and to look ahead expectantly to his second Advent living every day of our lives in the light of it because it could come at any time. So with John the Baptist, we say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And with another John, John the Evangelist, who wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation, with its final chapters picturing the kingdom of heaven fully and perfectly established, with this John, we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.